Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. But wait, there's more. You can now contribute through Venmo and Zelle by using my email address spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Didn't I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 416 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab 3. Wives, spiders, minnows, and a spacewalk. Last time we were just finishing up Mission Day 9. Now throughout the second mission to Skylab, all three astronauts kept daily diaries of their experiences. For Mission Day 9, Al Bean had Arabella the Spider on his mind. He wrote in his diary, quote, Owen let Arabella out of the vial. She had been in there since days prior to launch. She had not come out, so Owen got the vial off the cage, opened the door, and shook her out, where she immediately bounced back and forth, front to back, four or five times, then locked on to screen panels at the box's edge provided for visualization. There she sits, clutching the screen. Owen and I talked of giving spider food because she had not moved in one half day. Owen said no, because when she gets hungry is when she spins her web. She can live two to three weeks without food, if she has to, end quote. In 1973, the two cross spiders, Arabella and Anita, became quite famous. The public was extremely interested in two spiders prepared for spaceflight by Judith Miles, a high school student in Massachusetts. High school student Miles proposed an experiment to study the spider's method of web formation in weightlessness. This was intended to provide feedback on their mental activity as they adapted to microgravity. Arabella was released into her fully enclosed box from a small metal container 
about the size of a person's thumb. Her initial webs were very rough in appearance, but as the days progressed, they got better. After she consumed the last one and spun a new one, the webs finally started looking every bit as good as they would back on Earth. Despite Al Bean's concern over food consumption, the spiders remained healthy for the short term, and after about three weeks, Arabella was returned to her thumb-sized container, and Anita was released. Anita proceeded to exhibit the same behavior as Arabella, even after being cooped up in her small container for about a month. One of the more interesting experiments for the average person was submitted by a high school student. Can a spider spin a web in zero gravity? Well, this is the home of Arabella. At least the corner of it in which she decided to spin her web. I've got a close-up lens on here, so I can't show the full box that she's in. It's actually about uh, three times the area shown in this view. And she selected this corner in which to spin the web that you see here. She's been spinning these webs now for a little over two weeks, almost every night. And I'm not really certain that she changes it every night, which is a usual pattern for uh, webs or for spiders on the ground, as I understand it. Arabella succeeded in making a perfect web. Photographs of Arabella's web will be compared to webs produced by earthbound spiders. As Arabella and Anita captured the public's interest, Jack Lousman, who gave the public a famous televised tour of Skylab that I covered in a previous episode, admitted feeling a bit jealous at the time over the spider's status as spaceflight superstars. Jack was quoted as saying, it really disappointed me a little bit that on the ground the general public got more insight into what was happening with Arabella than what we were doing. End quote. Bean wrote in his diary that mission day nine, quote, Every day is filled with memorable experiences, sights, sounds, emotions, hope, fear, courage, friendship. I just wish we could go home to our wives at night. You know, I have hardly mentioned wives so far, but they were very much involved. They were even given their own emblem or patch. The astronauts were allowed to talk to their wives two or three times a week, and the wives were able to hear their husbands work over the speaker boxes NASA installed in their homes. The wives who for this mission were given their own emblem have been following closely what their husbands have been doing. George Lewis has a report. Although her husband, Alan Bean, is orbiting the Earth at 17,500 miles an hour, Sue Bean is seldom far from the sound of his voice. 
She, like the wives of the other Skylab astronauts, follows the air-to-ground communications at home on a speaker provided by NASA. Once or twice a week, the wives get to talk to their husbands on the mission control circuit. Frequently, the wives are asked what they do to pass the time while their husbands are in space. The wives say they don't have that much extra time to worry about. Five days a week, Sue Bean teaches a first grade class at a private school run by a local church. It's a job which takes up all her morning hours. Art is the main outside interest for Helen Garriott, the wife of astronaut scientist Owen Garriott. She has a small shop near the Johnson Space Center where she teaches painting and makes pottery. Her specialty is something called a moon pot with a replica of the lunar landscape glazed on the outside. The deluxe version has rhinestones indicating where all the American astronauts have landed. Gracia Lausma, the wife of astronaut Jack Lausma, doesn't have any outside jobs, but she says she's just as busy as the other two wives. Her hobby is raising horses. She's been breaking one of them, getting him ready for an upcoming horse show. The wives say they're close friends, and often they gather at each other's houses. They claim they don't worry about their husbands that much, even though the Skylab has experienced mechanical problems. I personally think they're very safe up there, and with all these people behind them figuring out the answers to any problem that might come up, I just, uh, I just don't think there's a thing to worry about. Between them, the astronauts' wives have nine children. They say even without all their outside activities, the youngsters would keep them busy enough until their husbands return. George Lewis, NBC News, Houston. Moving on to Mission Day 10. After being delayed for nearly a week, things were finally under control enough for the crew's first spacewalk. Jack Lausma and Owen Garriott were chosen to go outside on this first EVA. This left Al Bean inside to monitor the equipment and make sure everything went well. When Skylab was originally planned, the only type of EVA anticipated was for film replacement for the Apollo telescope mount. And that was what was first planned for this mission originally. But things had changed since the second mission was planned. I'm sure you recall that the first crew had to install a parasol that had been extended through the scientific airlock during the first mission to shield the workshop from direct sunlight. But that was done over three months ago. Now the parasol's ability to shade the workshop was deteriorating and temperatures were beginning to rise again inside the workshop. However, the first crew also brought up a second thermal mitigation system called the Marshall Cell Twin Pole Sunshade. However, the first crew did not install it. NASA wanted the Twin Pole Sunshade installed now because 
they believed it would again cool temperatures inside the workshop. Unfortunately, this would more than double the work required for the first EVA. Before going outside, the crew pulled in the parasol closer to the hull of the orbital workshop so that the twin pole assembly that they were to deploy would lie on top of the earlier shield. In this way, the unprotected orbital workshop would not be exposed to the sun. Garriott recalled, quote, We had the twin pole sunshade to deploy over the top of the parasol, in addition to film replacement. So after the film installation was first completed, I had to connect 11 five-foot sections of aluminum poles twice, forming two long poles. These were then extended to Jack, some 40 or 50 feet away, where the poles were mounted in a V, and a large sail pulled across them with nylon lines. This may have been the only sail this marine has ever rigged, and without a bit of wind to fill it out. End quote. I hope you remember the difficulty the first crew had with its EVA for the solar array wing deployment. That EVA clearly demonstrated that Skylab was not intended to support spacewalks like this. The main problem was there was no provision for spacewalkers to move about safely, except for the limited path installed to access the Apollo telescope mount film canisters. Lausma had no handholds or foot restraints or any translation aid to help him reach the area where he was to install the sunshade. Lausma's partner, Garriott, remained near the airlock module hatch to remove the segments of the pole from their packaging, mate and lock each piece together, and then extend the long poles to Lausma, who had moved far out on the truss structure. The one good thing was, even without the movement aids on Skylab's exterior, to help Lausma reach his destination, at least he was in no danger of floating off because he was connected to Skylab by an umbilical running back to the airlock module. Once Jack was in place where he would be doing most of the work, he used a set of portable foot restraints that were designed to attach to the structure of Skylab at that location so he could secure himself in place. Jack recalled, quote, You just kind of clamp them on and you could stand there and enjoy the views. End quote. After getting into position, Lausma had to mount an adapter to the truss that had two slots where the long 55-foot poles would be inserted. 
Garriott started putting the pole segments together with a standard bayonet-style connector. He fitted each segment into the next, compressed a spring, rotated the segment about 20 degrees, and latched it into place. Then he rolled a rubber ring over the fitting, securing the connection. Incidentally, on a later spacewalk, the crew discovered that this rubber locking ring had rolled back away from its connection. But fortunately, the bayonet connection was adequate to hold the segments together. When the two long poles were assembled, Garriott passed them on to Lausma, who then placed them into their slots such that they stretched all the way to the far end of the workshop. Next, Jack had to put the sunshade onto the poles, stretching it across the poles with long ropes, eventually covering almost the whole workshop exposure, including the old parasol deployed by the first crew. When Garriott was assembling the poles, he did experience an unanticipated problem. Back when they were testing this assembly on the ground at Marshall, it was decided not to take the flight hardware into the neutral buoyancy tank. The reason was the water might cause the equipment to corrode and malfunction. Instead, they decided to only test it on the dry floor out of the water without the added realism that practice in a neutral buoyancy would provide. They also decided not to test with pressure suits on. Here's how Garriott remembered it. Quote, We finally decided that for the 22 pole segments, a floor test without pressure-suited operation would be adequate. This was about the only compromise made in testing under the most realistic conditions possible. Naturally, this returned to bite me in space. When I had to remove each individual rod segment from their aluminum transporting frame on which they were mounted, manually, in a pressure suit, my fat fingers in their thick gloves could not get under the rods to lift them against the elastic straps that held them tightly against the transporting frame. I ended up having to squat down in the pressure suit, holding the frame beneath my foot, use one hand to lift up each rod upward against the surprisingly tough elastic, and then use my other hand across my body to wrench each rod from under the elastic strap. It may sound simple, but it turned out to be the most difficult physical task of the whole EVA, which we might have been able to modify had we tried it all in the pressure suit on the ground. And I had to repeat all this about 22 times. Send this to Lessons Learned Department. End quote. On the other hand, Lausma recalled that the neutral buoyancy training that they did perform had served him quite well, saying, quote, We learned how long it took us to do each task, 
and I think it took us twice as long in space. That wasn't because we weren't prepared. It was simply because we had the time and wanted to do it right. And we worked slowly and double-checked and rechecked everything as we were doing it. End quote. NASA was concerned that the twin poles were not going to be strong enough due to their relatively thin diameter compared with their 55-foot length, which Lousma said made them seem like a giant fishing pole. He wasn't too concerned about that, but he could tell a difference as they got longer. Lousma also experienced one unexpected issue during the spacewalk. He recalled, quote, The twin pole sunshade worked very well. It set for one little episode. When you look at the Skylab photos, the sunshade is kind of brown, but has a white streak in there. End quote. It seems when the sunshade was packed for launch, it was folded like an accordion and placed into a bag. I'm sure you recall on the first crewed mission, there was a rush to get ready to fly during the 10-day period prior to launch. Unfortunately, the adhesive used to attach the pieces together was not given adequate time to cure fully before the sunshade was folded and packed. Due to this stickiness, when Lausma unpacked the sunshade on the EVA and started to deploy it, the adhesive prevented it from unfolding as well as it was expected. Lausma continued, quote, So, I had to bring this whole thing back toward myself. It was all out of the bag and billowing up all over. And by hand, I had to unfasten all of those folds. Then I had to attach the two corners that were nearest me with a long lanyard and drift out to two places on either side of the multiple docking adapter to attach the lanyards. When the large cell was deployed, the twin poles were flopped down on top of the parasol and against the Skylab workshop, and the lanyards tightened. It nearly covered the workshop and worked quite well, so that was done, and I thought, end of story. But it turns out that I had missed one of those folds, and so it was out there like that for a long time and getting browner and browner. Then the sun did the rest of the job and unstuck that one little piece. And so you see that white streak in there. And that was the one that had remained folded for the longest time. End quote. I also want to mention that the Apollo Telescope Mount Film Exchange provided Owen Garriott with the opportunity to do something he had been looking forward to. Owen recalled, quote, One of the first things I did for fun was something I had planned before flight. Is there anyone who has not looked over the edge of a high cliff or 
a rail of a building and felt an extra surge of emotion and adrenaline at the view. So here I stood at the front end of the Apollo telescope mount to replace film. But I could also look straight down a 435 kilometer or 270 mile elevator shaft to the ground. It is a different perspective when in a pressure suit with nothing between you and a hard vacuum other than a thin plexiglass faceplate. As compared to looking out the window of a jet aircraft or even the wardroom window of Skylab. End quote. This is Skylab Control at 11 hours 55 minutes Greenwich Mean Time on mission day 10. Today's uh, entire crew schedule is devoted to the extravehicular activity. This was the first of three scheduled EVAs. The amount of work to be performed would make it the longest. I don't know, I've got to check now. Do I have any twist above me, Jack? Uh, nope. Okay, now let me see about this. Erecting a new sunshade over the workshop was their most difficult task. The parasol, deployed from inside by the first crew, had done an adequate job of thermal protection. But temperatures were still high in places, and too, the life of the parasol was questionable. The sunshade would even out workshop temperatures, and it would endure well beyond the final mission. Everything's going in good up here. They're working at a slow, steady pace, and nobody's tired. Uh, so uh, I have a feeling that the last half is going to go a little bit faster. We were the most concerned about this one because we didn't want to lose any parts. Okay. The EVA consumed about double the time allotted, but all tasks were successfully performed. The total time outside the workshop was six and a half hours, a new record for orbital EVA. Temperatures began to fall before the day ended. They eventually stabilized at around 75 degrees, providing the best environment in the workshop since it was launched. Jack estimated that the sunshade installation took about three hours of the six-and-a-half-hour-long spacewalk. It was really closer to four hours. In addition to the routine Apollo telescope mount task and the sunshade, Jack and Owen also checked the exterior of Skylab to find the location of a coolant leak. They deployed experiment samples and they searched for visual evidence of the leaking reaction control system quads on the service module. Lausma could not find any discoloration around the service module quads from the outgassing. However, he commented that the sunward side of the cluster was discolored by extended solar exposure and even the command and service module that had been in orbit for less than two weeks was showing signs of solar ray heating. It turned out that searching for the coolant leak would occupy quite a bit of the second crew's time during their stay on Skylab. They also looked for the leak inside the station as well. 
To gain access to the station's plumbing, they even removed some wall panels in their search. Unfortunately, that proved to be difficult since it was another maintenance activity that had not been anticipated pre-flight. Engineers assumed that there would be no reason to detach the panels, so they designed them to remain firmly in place with no simple mechanism for removal. Even with all these efforts, the second crew was unsuccessful in finding the source of the coolant leak. Instead, a procedure was developed for the third crew to recharge the coolant supply. After the EVA was completed, the crew rested for the rest of the day. Bean wrote an addendum to his diary about Mission Day 10's spacewalk. Here's an excerpt. Quote, Jack said being out on the sun end was a little like Peter Pan, or that you were riding a big white horse. Feet spread wide across the whole world. The earth is visible on both sides at the same time, and you can see 360 degrees riding backwards. End excerpt. On mission day 11, with the film loaded, it was time to begin Apollo telescope mount work in earnest, and the collection of instruments was producing groundbreaking results. For example, the solar flares were very exciting for the crew to witness. These solar outbursts appeared particularly strong at ultraviolet and X-ray wavelengths, which were visible to the observers on Skylab using their TV screens because they were above most of the Earth's atmosphere. However, they were not visible to the ground observers. The ground viewed the active solar regions in visible light and then could direct the crew's attention to potential locations on the sun. In contrast to ground astronomers, the crew could see the first signs of a solar outburst from Skylab with ultraviolet and X-ray displays. Garriott wrote in his diary, quote, Full Apollo telescope mount operations. On day 11, got a flare right off in active region 85. Had been working that active region all orbit. Very fortunate. End quote. The adult minnows, meanwhile, were still confused about which way was up or down. But strangely enough, their children, recently hatched aboard Skylab, came into the world without ever having to adapt to zero-g. Well before launch, Owen Garriott requested to perform a small experiment dealing with fish and microgravity. He thought it would be of interest to the whole crew and a bit of a morale booster. The arrangements were made by Dr. Richard Simmons, a veterinarian on the staff of the Johnson Space Center in Houston. The experiment included two small mummachug minnows and 50 unhatched eggs in a small plastic bag that the crew taped to a wall or bulkhead. 
The Minnows had a strange and somewhat unexpected response to weightlessness of swimming forward but looping or pitching down. The crew enjoyed watching the transparent eggs develop and the fry after hatching also proved interesting. Even though the fry were born in space, a weightless environment, they exhibited some of the same looping behavior, but not to the extent of the earthborn minnows. Not surprisingly, these observations would eventually lead to one scientific paper and then several more space experiments on later shuttle space lab flights and, as a result, more scientific papers. Garriott wrote in his diary, quote, Fish orient down toward the wall, usually and fairly quiet, but if stirred up a little and held in the middle of the room, still do outside hops pitching down. Fed both spiders today. Not sure if they will eat. End quote. On mission day 12, Al Bean wrote in his diary, quote, My green copy of Childhood's End floated by. If you wait long enough, everything lost will float by. A dynamic environment, no one can be stranded in the center of a space because small air currents have an effect. I tried to fly, like swimming, last night, but air currents are much more dominant. Fire and rapid delta P drill today. Here Bean is referring to a fire drill and a rapid depressurization drill. Owen needs this the most, but hates it the worst. I tried to stick with him and do this together. Jack goes alone when I am distracted. Owen will be doing other things, not drill related, and I must get him back. Slept better last night, upside down, because it was cooler from the twin boom sunshade. Arabella ate her web last night and spun another perfect one. End quote. On Mission Day 13, Owen Garriott wrote in his diary more about these solar observations, saying, quote, Mission Day 13, M3 X-ray flare, well covered, and then a C2R3 all from active region 85. Note, C2 or C3 is a classification of intensity. Okay, continuing. The last was covered only by ultraviolet monitor on the video tape recorder. Also, a good S063 ozone photo with the Earth Resources Experiment Package in the morning. Very good day indeed. Everyone in excellent spirits. Tomorrow is more or less a day off, but we'll stay busy. Can become disoriented with rapid spins. 
we all still feel some sense of up and down related to orientation of the 1G trainer and the equipment installation. End quote. And we will continue on with the history-making Mission Day 14 next time. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 416 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab 3, Wives, Spiders, Minnows, and a Spacewalk. Our next episode should be released on or about June 29th. If you would like to to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and typing in your email in the text box. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 235 are available on the Archive Podcast. Just search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers, including Spotify. If you would like, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Space Rocket Hist. You can also follow me on Facebook. And you can catch up with me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Space Rocket History. As always, I have some quick uh, afterthoughts here. I want to apologize for my mispronunciations. Well, how about those spiders? More famous than astronauts, Arabella and Anita. Spoiler alert, don't get too attached to Anita. But wasn't that a cool experiment thought up by a high school student? I think she was probably delighted to have her experiment selected and for it to become so popular. So a big shout out to Judith Miles from the Space Rocket History Podcast. She's probably pretty close to my age, the early 60s, so she's probably still alive. I hope she is. So a big shout out. That minnow experiment was pretty good too. They swim in loops. Did you notice the contradiction that I left in there? The news reports said that the minnows that were hatched in space didn't have any adaptation problems. But the astronauts said that they did. So, I will let you decide who is more accurate, the eyewitness account or the news report. Moving on, I'm a little disappointed that NASA didn't design Skylab for more extensive spacewalks. I guess they were trying to save money. But some handholds or foot restraints or maybe a pop-up rail sure would have been handy. Also, not being able to remove a wall panel where plumbing is running behind it is a bit short-sighted. 
this was supposed to be a long-duration space mission. So you got to believe you're going to have problems and failures of equipment and leaks and things like that. I guess they were still learning at this stage. Or, more likely, I'll stick up for the engineers since I am one, were overruled by the accountants. But that is just me guessing based on my past experience, and I have no evidence to support that. It was very interesting reading through the crew diaries. Al Bean usually wrote his in mostly complete sentences, but Garriott would abbreviate just about every word and leave words out entirely. There was a lot of info in the diary entries that I did not share just for lack of time, and I wasn't sure how interested you would be in them. But I do have a sample that was pretty good from Bean's Mission Day 10. And uh, it is when he was watching uh, the spacewalk. So th- this entry is almost poetic, and I want to read it to you. It says, quote, Watching out the window as Jack worked in the dark, I could not look at him in the light as he was too close to the sun. It was fantastic to see the sunrise. It began as a light blue band which grew with a fine yellow rim near the limb. The blue gets larger then. Just before sunup, you could see flashes of light toward the horizon where thunderstorms were playing. This pinpointed the coming horizon which was not yet discernible against the dark of the earth from within the lighted cabin. Gold color grows in the last 15 seconds to change much of the dark blue into bright orange. As the sun rises, the earth's horizon slowly silhouetted against the blue line. It gives the feeling of going around a big planet, a big ball, rather than just a disk moving from in front of the eye. The science fiction movie effect was fantastic. End quote. Finally, in personal news, the crops are still growing, the garden is still growing. We got some good rain because it was a bit dry here. And rest assured, the cracks in the basement are slowly growing wider. Still no word from the builder as to when they are coming to fix all the other problems. But in good news, Mrs. SRH has finished school for the summer and she is all mine again. I can interrupt her as much as I want for the next couple of months. I'm very excited about that. <laughs> Over the past fortnight, we received two donations and pledges. In fact, for the past four weeks, we have only averaged one new donation per week. I don't have to tell you that that is not sustainable. Plus, we lost three donors on Patreon as the month changed from May to June. But I would like to thank 
the Patreon donors who have stuck with us and the two new donations we see received this fortnight. Thanks to Graham M. from Australia who donated at the mere ISS level and earned a big 10 emoji. Congratulations for being there since the beginning, Graham. Your loyalty is appreciated. Greg H. from New Orleans, who donated at the Soyuz level and earned a shooting star emoji. Congratulations, Greg. Thank you for your long years of donation. As I mentioned, our total Patreon donors for 2023 have declined to 240. That is down three from last month. Our total donors for the year, which includes Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, and checks, have reached 308 with an overall goal of 454 this year. We will really have to get cracking to make that goal. So if you are enjoying this podcast that's been running for over 10 years without commercial interruption, and you can't afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Or you can donate by check, donate on Venmo or Zelle using my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. The winner for this episode will get the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet or the regular magnet or two stickers or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Josh Attenberg. Josh Attenberg, if you will email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Please accept my apologies if I mispronounced your name. Sincere thanks to all who have contributed thus far in 2023. My sources for this episode were NASA, Homesteading Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, NBC News, Skylab, Our First Space Station by Leland Bailu, Skylab America Space Station by David Shaler, Outpost on the Frontier by J. Chaladic. The Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 417 posted on or about June 29th. Live long and prosper, everyone. <laughs>